We're going to take a look at a good Halloween Kickstarter for a product called Under the Harvest Moons. We're also going to take a look at the Venture Maidens Campaign Guide by 2C Gaming. Ray Weninger did, in fact, leave Wizards of the Coast. We're going to talk a little bit about that and what that means for D&D. The one D&D survey for experts is now out. We're going to talk about how I feel about it, how some friends of mine feel about it and their discussions of it. More importantly, we're going to talk about what elements from the one D&D playtest we can grab onto right now and bring into our games and just use and enjoy. We're also going to cover more questions from the October 2022 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you enjoy this show and the work that I do, you can become a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive adventures, exclusive material to help you run your D&D games, the City of Archers Sourcebook, a dedicated Discord channel, the Patreon Q&A, all different kinds of stuff, video previews, you get tons and tons of stuff for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So we're going to start off with our two product previews today. The first is for a Kickstarter called Under the Harvest Moons, Horror Options for 5th Edition. This is a relatively small product, a 50-page product that covers everything from character options, monster options, weird, like horror-themed factions, weird monsters. It's got a little bit of everything in it. And it's it's pretty cool. It's actually like a small Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. It has sort of a lot of different options that you can bring in for the characters themselves, for the world around them, for the monsters they have. It is it's put on by Underground Oracle Publishing. There is a link down in the show notes to take a look at the Kickstarter. You can see all the kind of things that you have there. Very beautiful product. I reached out to one of the creators of the product who sent me a preview copy of it that I could show off. You can, you can download, I think it's about a five-page preview of the product itself. But I was lucky enough to get access to the whole thing. One important thing for this Kickstarter is if you back it, you will get all of these options sent to you in PDF before Halloween. Oh, it's a fast delivering Kickstarter. This isn't one where you're waiting a year before you're going to get it. They've actually written the product. They've already laid it out. And I'm going to show it to you right now. So this is Under the Harvest Moon. Really, really good looking artwork. Very excellent design. Really, really, really like it. Jess Pendley and Keith Pendley are the writing and design team. Jess I had spoken to and gave me the preview for it. And again, 51 page product. PDF, you can also get a physical version of it. So it's up to you if you want both a PDF and physical version. Take a look at the layout. Take a look at that artwork. Really, really cool artwork. Very cool design. I looked at it and I like this a lot. I like the fact that it's not huge. I like that it's not 300 pages. Not every product needs to be 300 pages. And it's nice to have just a set of focused stuff, focused material that you can just kind of run and you know grab and run. You could use this very much for like a Halloween one shot. The idea of taking new character abilities, new character, new character traits that you make available for one sh- for a one shot horror focused game, I think is a, a really cool w- way to do it. So there's all these haunted world options. This is the stuff that I really resonate with because I'm into the DM stuff. So I like the stuff that helps that helps DMs. Lots lot of good flavor in here a lot of really cool ideas that you can sort of grab onto and it's almost like a you know a kind of a mini a floaty mini setting right information that you can use in lots of different ways costumes and twisted tales this is a whole like running halloween you know running a version of halloween in your in your game I really dig the art the art and the style really grabs me i'm i'm a big i'm a big fan of it i think it i think it looks i think it looks really cool. plot hooks always important to have your plot hooks you have guilds and orders. I love this. The Darkened Veil. These are these are all of your like secret societies and things. Malefic Ripples, Divisions of the Order, who joins? 
you know, different guilds and golds. Cults and syndicates. Who doesn't love cults? Look at that guy. That, 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 they're, they're pretty culty. That's a God. The art is really, really outstanding. So, you know, who doesn't want some, some extra cults? So a good, a good deal of material that DMs can use to just sort of in, inspire themselves. God, that, you know, pa- parasites for your game. That This picture gives me nightmares. There's a couple pictures in here. I'm like, ah, that's scary. That, I'm, I'm too scared. Really, really great stuff. So here's all different sort of parasites that you can use if you're into sort of body horror, body horror ideas. Ah, oh, that's the one I want to look at. Ear, ear gook. Storm might, you know, all different kinds of stuff here. Infesting spells. I remember this, that there was a book that Rob Schwab came out with called The Spells of Bor Boalish, the, the Horrifying Spells of Bor Boalish, which were just sort of like dark spells and i gave them to hags and i remember when i dropped these things on my players when the characters were getting hit with these weird spells that did terrible things to them they were really freaked out and that's i think an important consideration i've talked about this before on the show that when you pick up a book of spells and you're like well i don't know if i want to give these spells to my characters i don't want to make these available because then i got to deal with them forever that you don't have to give out spells for characters they are spells and options for monsters that you can give them to evil npcs you can evil spellcasters you can make them an innate ability of a monster that they can do this cloak of grotesque multitudes is something they can just do so you can look at this little mechanic and treat it like a template that you drop on a monster so i really i i i I dig i dig that idea legendary cursed items i like these scythe blades where the spikes kind of tear into your skin these are really powerful they plus three and they do they do really nasty things you can inflict a lot of damage but they also one of the things i liked about the cursed items when i was taking a look through these is that they the cursed items that they have are the kind where if you even if you know the curse you may still want to use it i don't like the gotcha cursed items i actually don't well, this is something that you know i don't really talk a lot about but i don't really run cursed items i don't like to have I don't like gotchas. I don't, I, don't, I don't think they're nearly as much fun. The idea of springing a nasty surprise on your players is not nearly as rewarding as when they accept that nastiness themselves. So when you make an item that has both a benefit and a curse, and the benefit is really good, but the curse is really hard, that's pretty cool. Like, would you use these plus three scythes that inflict these extra 2d6 damage if you know that your hit points is reduced permanently by 3d12, right? Like, I don't know. That's a lot of damage to take. So to me, offering those dark choices is way more interesting than, ha, your sword sucks. Right. So I like I I like cursed items where even if you know they're cursed, you still kind of want to use it, that they have a benefit and a detriment. And it's a way to like if you want to give something really powerful to your character, but they have a glowing weak spot, the the item can have that glowing weak spot. That's really cool. So and I and I I I didn't look through every one of these items, but I know the couple ones that I did look at had those things to them. You wanted to use them, even if you knew what even if you knew that they were cursed i really dig that player options the terror born you know what was this person once where did they come from what darkness brought them there nightmare ancestry so really cool you know very very cool backgrounds that that you can that you can apply look at that one There's, that meryl is having a bad day that's a bad she's she's not she's not I think it's cool. It's a Marilith. You don't get to see Marilith that often. Bardic College, the College of Cursed College. So these are cool like subclass options. And you might say like, we're going to run a third level game one shot. And so you can pick one of these. You can pick the College of the Cursed Collar. I really like the, where is it? The Broken Bone Domain reminded me very much of Gideon the Ninth. 
I don't know if anybody's read Gideon the Ninth or Harrow the Ninth or Nona the Ninth. These are three, a trilogy of books about crazy space flying lesbian necromancers. And I love it. It's a really, really good book series. Second book and the third book, a little harder to read than the first, but Bone Necromancer is really kind of fun. And I think that book more than any I've seen really covered like what it's like to be a cool, crazy necromancer type. So I don't know if there's any inspiration from that in here, but it's very, you know, it's still a very cool subclass that you might offer up to a, a character. Look at that. Isn't that wild? God, the art is so good. The art and design of this, the circle of the unseelie, right? Why wouldn't you be, and maybe instead of being unseelie by your ancestry, what if you're connected to the unseelie fae through being a druid? Maybe you, you call to that kind of power. Very, very neat stuff. Really cool. So I could go on monsters, you know, cool monster, black, the black-eyed child monster, very you know, typical horror. The dread coachman, I could actually use that stat block on my Ravenloft game because I always start with a coach ride, but they never fight the guy. So it'd be kind of fun if they did the first time right the dread coachman gets off and says it ends here and then you have to fight the dread the dread coachman that'd be kind of fun maybe i'll have to take a look at that bunny man blood-soaked bunny man so really really cool stuff and like i said you back the kickstarter you will get this before the end of the month so that is under the harvest moons horror options for fifth edition by underground oracle publishing you can back the kickstarter the link is down in the show notes below venture maidens was another kickstarter that i mentioned i think i did a spotlight of the kickstarter back when the kickstarter was going on and now we have received the product and you can now if you weren't in on the kickstarter if you didn't back the kickstarter you can now pick up the pdf of the venture maidens campaign guide from 2c gaming the pdf is uh, the link to the pdf is down in the show notes below i wanted to talk about the actual product now that we have it in hand so venture maidens is a popular streaming DD game that's been going on for some time so venture maidens comes from a group of people who have been playing a DD game they've been streaming this game online and they brought all of the material that they've been using for this fantasy world that they had and brought it together into a campaign guide called the Venture Maidens Campaign Guide. So uh, Celeste Conowich, who is the one of the lead designers of this product, used to work for 2C Gaming and worked for 2C Gaming while this product was going on, now got hired by Cobalt Press and is now working over at Cobalt Press, one of my other favorite third-party publishers. So she has definitely been with a, and done a lot of work for a lot of different companies in this RPG space. And you can see a lot of the of her excellent design work in, in, in this book. So this is what it looks like. And again, I'll tell you one thing about just the, the trend of the industry. All these things look so good. The layout and design and art that's going into these third-party products is just outstanding. And the style is really cool. And what I like about it is the style for stuff like this, like Wizards of the Coast has a house style, right? There's a house style guide. There's a house style art. So you're going to get the same kind of book. It looks great. Like Wizards of the Coast books look fantastic, but they're going to have a very particular style. With third-party products, they're not bound by one style. They can do different things. They can try different things. If you want to see style, check out like Mjorkberg to look like what a really stylized RPG looks like. So what we get are books that look different, but also look really cool. And, and Venture Mains is a, a really good example where the artwork behind it, the style behind it really outstanding stuff so the venture maidens campaign guide is a 227 page campaign source book it includes character options it includes dm guidance we're going to talk about the dm guidance they have in here big section on on how to how to dm this but also how to dm in general which i think is very cool a lot of information about the world a lot of information about new mechanics new ideas in here they have a whole system called heroic destinies which is a whole other layer that you can add on to your character about something that you are intended to do and what kind of powers you get by both aiming towards this thing that you're 
that your your this this heroic destiny you have and also what you get when you achieve your heroic destiny so yeah it has got all sorts of things just looking at the table of contents we have character creation a big section on character creation about 50 pages of character creation stuff uh, a whole section on the mortal realm the fairy realm building adventures treasures friends and foes all different kinds of things so a big uh, and again man man with the killer art really cool stuff so obviously if you are a fan of Venture Maidens, Venture Maidens has a, a fan base that follows this, this streaming game. And v almost certainly, if you're a fan of Venture Maidens, this is the book you'd want to get. In a very similar way that the Taldorai Reborn campaign source book is a fantastic product for people who are fans of Critical Role. The Venture Maidens book is a fantastic product for people who are fans of the Venture Maidens streaming series. But also, if you have never even heard of Venture, like I'm, I am, I have not really followed the Venture Maidens series. So, but for me, I look at it and it's like, it's still a very, very cool source book. It still has lots of information. So the fact that it comes from this streaming service means it's been like tested. This whole realm has been, you know, you, you can watch people kind of, you know, tear into it. But you know, now we get to benefit from it, even if we weren't really following the series itself. And maybe you read it and you go, this is really cool. I'd like to see people playing it. There's a whole series that you can follow. So really kind of cool idea. The whole the whole idea behind the world, as far as I understand it, again, skim, skim, skim reading this thing, is that if you normally think about a D&D &D world, you have the prime material plane and you have other planes of existence. And maybe there are portals that connect them or there are spells that can connect them and things like that. In this idea, what if the worlds were bleeding together? What if just through your regular travels, you were traveling to these other realms or, or areas where these other realms bled into the main world? So instead of having hard barriers, these sort of magical hard barriers between these worlds, what if it was all soft? And what if you could just be traveling and now you find yourselves in these other worlds the big ones of course being the connection between sort of the primary world and the fey realm the fairy realm that that blends now that that has been kind of done you can you can certainly have it where like walking through a forest kind of brings you into that area but even still most of the time you're traveling through a portal if you think about cobalt press and midgard for example in Midgard, you travel along the ley lines. You travel along what they call the shadow roads. And that would take you to the realm of the, the, the realm of the fairy and things like that. But it's still like you have to get there somehow. It's not just like, oh, one day you walk. It's like you have to physically do a thing. So in this one, the, that whole idea, the whole realm is, is, is fuzzier. It is also a world shaped by will that your attitude, the attitude of the people kind of shifts and changes the world around them. It's not, it, it is a, it is a world based on the, 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 the the will of those who exist in it not just a physical realm where will is is completely separated from it realm of eternal conflict there's a, a whole history how that how that plays historic role playing everyone is bound by fate these are things that you can bind your characters to You've seen me in my session zeros where I try to draw the characters directly into the campaign by making sure they have these hard, hard connections. These are examples of some of the things you would make sure your characters had to be well tied into, into the adventure. The art, the art is interesting. So the art kind of shifts between color art, black and white art, different styles of art all throughout it. Again, really cool kind of, you know, unique style, a unique style to it, but man, just bell ringer. I like the bell bandolier. That is that is that is really cool. So character creation, you have various races. You have new new races, the Eldrin, the Eldrin race, the Grove Elf, some other, you know, other races and how they play in. I always like a section like this. This to me is a really powerful thing. Like, what does it mean to be a dragonborn in this world? That that's something where you can sort of reskin. You don't have to change the mechanics around. You don't have to worry like if one DD decides they're gonna change things, where you can go. You can just you can just go with it. 
So I like that. New backgrounds, Dabbler, Farrier, stuff like that. A uh, whole bunch of new backgrounds. The Harlequin, the Herbalist. Again, good connections. Lots of, lots of backgrounds. So lots of ways. And backgrounds are a really good... If you're going to write a campaign book, focusing on backgrounds are great because they're almost all flavor. Again, you don't have to worry too much about like... My players love using D&D Beyond and they're not going to use this stuff. Well, backgrounds are easy to incorporate in D&D Beyond. Like that, there's some stuff that it's easy for them to incorporate. So, so it really, it really works well. Subclasses, Path of the Legacy. Subclasses are a little trickier if you're using D&D Beyond as we've, as we've talked about before. New cleric domains, new fighter archetypes, stuff like that. So interesting stuff. A lot of player focused stuff, a lot of player focused material in this, in this campaign guide, which again, really good, really, you know, can be, can be a lot of fun to thematically change your campaign. And the one thing that I would recommend, oh, and now we get into heroic destinies. I don't want to skip this. I don't want to talk about heroic destinies. One of the things that I think we can do that I am doing in my game and something I recommend, and it's hard is, you know, focusing more on third-party material when we're running our games, offering more character options from third-party materials. If we want to help break people's reliance on D&D Beyond in particular, for those of us who have players who are definitely tied heavily to D&D Beyond, one of the ways that we can kind of help break our reliance on a watsy only D&D game is to bring in more third-party material and bring in material that is really compelling for the player to say, oh, I really want to use these new heroic destinies or I really want to use this new character subclass or I want to try this new race. Like, you know, if if we're not just saying, no, don't use D&D Beyond, that's not great. But if we're saying instead, like, you know, you can do what you want, but look at all this cool stuff over here that you got. Look at all these new character options. And like, I don't want those character options. Maybe use a paper character sheet. So that's a way to kind of break our reliance on D&D Beyond and get access to tons and tons and tons of more material. So much fantastic player-driven material like the stuff we're seeing in the Venture Maiden's Guide. Heroic Destiny. So what is a Heroic Destiny? Heroic Destiny is a, another feature of your character that says your character has a thing they are intended to accomplish. They are designed to accomplish. There are a whole bunch. We have Avenger, Celebrity, Explorer, Fortune Seeker, Immortal, Scholar, Symbiosis, Teacher, Virtuoso, and Wielder. And they are essentially, we've, we've had this with like magic items before, where you'd get a magic item, the item would level up as you did things. What if that wasn't tied to an item and it was built into your character? And so when your character hit a certain level or accomplish a certain activity they would get a new a new benefit so we'll look at like the avenger i was looking at the i was looking at the avenger class which is like something terrible happened to them that they are avenging good good little sidebar on like how to handle this with your players so that you're not getting into things that you don't really want to get into always good always good for part of your session zero and your safety tool discussions. So you have a prerequisite. What's the thing that ties it to you? What are your milestones? Like the, the examples of, of possible tier milestones for the Avenger Heroic Destiny. So you get to kind of build these with your players. They're not, they're not set. Declaring a vow of vengeance in front of a deity. Sacrificing something you hold dear to get justice for a stranger. Standing up to impossible odds to prevent your imposing. And these can flex, right? You can, you can sort of, as the game moves on, you can sort of change them. And then you have certain things. What do you get at tier one? A seething passion. You know, benefit, heroic destiny benefit payback. When you move speed increases by 10 feet, you can add a d4 to ability check or attack while you made against a creature. Sort of like you're charging at them. Like, I need to stick you, stick you with my sword. So, you know, path, path of pathos. 
started a fight for those who were wronged when an ally takes damage from a creature you can see you can use your reaction to make one weapon attack against a creature so it's almost like a miniature subclass that's sitting on top of it. it's like another feature so of course it means that the characters are going to have a tiny little bit more power but it's very specific things that they're getting it's of course another area of complexity that you're adding to the game by adding you've got race class background and now heroic destiny but I think for a lot of us who have advanced players, players who've been playing for a long time, we're looking for something new. This is a really cool feature you can bring in. Now, obviously, you don't have to bring in the Heroic Destiny idea just into a Venture Mains campaign. You can bring this idea right into any game that you're running, any campaign you're running. You can be like, this idea that everybody has a destiny in the game is a, a really cool feature. It's also a great way you're tracking the destiny. You can make sure that you're you're tapping into these hooks every time that you are uh, talking to one of your players. So really, really cool really cool stuff and the book is just packed with stuff so i can't you know i could spend hours going through the whole book but i'm going to kind of skip down and, and hit other other features of this as well bunch of new spells that you can pick up and again as we learned about in the previous one these are spells you don't necessarily have to just give to players you can use these with your monsters too think of every spell as a tiny little monster template a tiny little monster feature that you can tap onto one of your npcs or something like that lots of cool things you can do here you can put them on single use magic items right you can have an item that the characters pick up and they put father's embrace as one item that they put on this thing or dissolve as a weird spell that they've got right it's not quite disintegrate it's like miniature disintegrate cool so, you know, spells are actually really powerful aids for DMs. What else do we have going on here? Of course, we have the whole description of the Mortal Realm, the actual campaign part of this campaign source book. The Mortal Realm, what that looks like, and then the Fairy Realm, the Realm of the Fairy, which sits sort of overlapping and adjacent and sort of interconnected. So really, really neat story idea. I didn't dive into the setting too much. I, I, I gave it kind of a, a, a quick look, but I like that it's not, massive like it's a digestible set it's got enough lore that you can really use it to fill out your campaign world when you're running in it but not so huge as you're reading like a 400 page book i love the midgard world book i think it's fantastic it's also very big and it could take you forever to really understand that whole world i'm diving deep into it now for my two cobalt press games and it is taking a a lot of time and a lot of energy it's worthwhile but it's also nice to have a campaign setting that's not totally massive so really great stuff here then of course other things that you would here's the whole fairy realm again you, you know as i'm scrolling through you can see some of the just gorgeous artwork gorgeous artwork that is that that you can find in in, in this really outstanding stuff and that the whole connection between the, the 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 fairy the world of the fairy and the world of the mortal realm is is oh look at this we got like a poem really just god the style of this book is fantastic more poems look at that one that is that great incredible artwork so building adventures so here's an interesting thing chapter four building adventures in the plains talks about kind of building your adventures in this world but what's interesting is it offers a lot of advice that is not you know you don't necessarily have to follow just for running an adventure here it is a lot of really good adventure guidance almost like a miniature dm guide in the middle of your source book. And I looked at that and I was like, huh, that's really interesting. So the stuff up front here is definitely all about how to build an adventure. But then you have a general wisdom. And the general wisdom is like how to how to run a D&D game. And it's great. Like you have people who've been running games for a long time. They get their, their thoughts together. They put into a book. And I was pretty happy because it a lot of the style that's in here 
it's styles that I, I think are, are directly compatible with thoughts that I have for lazy dungeon masters, lazy dungeon mastering, starting small, making sure everyone has fun, how to get started. You don't need to know every rule. Very good. You know, very good advice. Assembling a party, running a session zero, what it's like to run. If it's your first session ever, what should you, what should you do? How you have your house rules, character creation, all the, all the good stuff for that first session of the game, you know, what to cover. Here's a whole thing about session zero prepping a session. Not enough stuff that talks about how to prep a session. Where does the session start? Right? Strong start. Always important. What are the encounters? What are the scenes that might come up? Are the players learning anything new? What are the secrets and clues? So a lot of connections in here that I think are very compatible with the ways of, of, of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I think it, I think it works really well. And uh, yeah, and I think it's always outstanding to have people like, what are the, you know, how do you do collaborative storytelling, descriptive storytelling, pacing? How do you handle pacing? This is such a big topic. So you get like a whole little miniature DM guide in your, in your campaign source book here. Things to help kind of, if you're familiar with it, how to refresh on this stuff. If you're new to D&D, how to kind of learn this stuff, really good stuff. How to build a campaign, building your own setting, what the tiers of play are like. You know, I, I would not be surprised if, if the designers of this book had the same sort of thing I did, which is these are the things I wish the Dungeon Master had, the Dungeon Master's Guide had. So lots of, lots of good stuff. How to manage scheduling, how to handle missing players, you know. Fantastic stuff. Then a whole section on treasures. What are all the things you want to have for treasures? Again, you can drop these in any of your game. So continues on. We have monsters. We have all different kinds of things in here. Again, I could go through. I mean, it's a 200 page book. Friends and foes. Cool monsters that are going on here. What are you know different? You have creature templates, which I think are great. Like taking existing creatures and adding new abilities to them. That's something that's not done nearly enough. Most people just go straight to building new monsters but the idea of like here's how to take all the existing monsters but put this little trait on them and that one trait changes them to something completely different i think more more books could could do that so really good fantastic book so i really think i'm, I'm obviously i backed it as a kickstarter backer i was very happy to get it i was very happy to read it and go man this is a really really good book it's been sitting on my desktop i've been enjoying it i really like it so if you did not get in on the kickstarter you can pick up the Adventure Maidens campaign guide at 2C Gaming on their website. A link to that is in the show notes below. So I think it was last week or the week before I mentioned that Ray Weninger's Twitter profile seemed to have removed all mention of Wizards of the Coast and he had also gone dark on Twitter. My friend DM David, David Hartledge, had listened to the podcast of that and said, huh, that's interesting and tweeted to Ray Weninger saying, what's up? kind of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And Ray Weninger responded and said, yes, indeed, I no longer am working for Wizards of the Coast. I think his, I think he had a tiny little thread, right? So DM David says, is Ray Weninger out as the head of the need team? You know, you heard about it here. Sorry for the radio sounds. In the midst of sorely needed long rest, I have indeed left Wizards of the Coast having accomplished the ambitious goals we set out when I took over the team. Sounds like a little bit of corporate speak to me. I mean, good, good for him. You know, I hope, I hope he lands in a good place. I hope he, I, and, and he's going to be making other things. It'll be very interesting. He was a creator for a long time. He was on the D&D team, I think a long time ago, and then did a bunch of things, did some video game work, then also worked on some other role-playing game stuff, and then was on the Wizards team again, and now is off doing other things again. So I wish him the best. I, I look forward to kind of seeing the things he wants to do. But when I see things like having accomplished the ambitious goals, you're in the middle of a play test. You just started a play test. <laughs> it's like there's two guys that came out. I don't know how you could say we accomplished our goals in the middle of a play test. That doesn't sound like accomplishing a goal. It sounds like a nice thing to say. <laughs> I think it's unfortunate that we have somebody who was the head of the team for two years. That's not a long time to be the head of the team. So what does that mean? What else are you going to say? What, you know, well, it was nice working there. I don't know. I don't think I would say I've accomplished the ambitious goals I set out. 
in the middle of a play test. But he's not the PR arm for Wizards anymore. He can say whatever the hell he wants, I presume, unless he signed like some kind of NDA, like, oh, be nice on your way out or, or we'll get you. And he mentions all of the people they worked with on the team, which is very you know, good to hear. It's also interesting to kind of, oh, we have our list of all the people that work on the team. So that's that's really good. Nobody uses the term accomplish an ambitious goal in real life. That's that's kind of true. But you also don't want to walk away and be like, yeah, I got, I got, and, I, and who knows? It's We don't know what happened. We don't know if he left. He could have, he could have left. He could have been, he could have been removed. We do know they have a new vice president. We do know it's the first time there has been a vice president in charge of the D&D brand. And we know it's a Microsoft Amazon dude. So who knows, right? Who knows, who knows how that, who knows how that worked out? And the big question, and I know I like seated, like, what does that mean for D&D? And the answer is, who knows? We don't know what it means for D&D. I'm sure it's always one of these things where you're like, if they say, oh, it doesn't affect anything. We're like, well, then what the hell was he doing there? <laughs> right? Like, how can it not affect things? If you either, you either have somebody who wasn't doing anything, which I doubt is the case, right? I would certainly not say like, oh, Wayne Winninger was like, you know, throwing pencils at the ceiling like David Letterman. No, he probably was doing stuff and then he's not doing stuff. And so you can't say it doesn't have an effect on the team. I'm sure they, oh no, everything's everything's fine here. There's nothing to see here. Move along. Keep going on with your podcasts. Hey, have you looked at Dragonlance? Have you checked out the Lord Soth cover? You can't, you know, you, you, you can almost imagine the PR they would say, oh no, team is going strong. Everything's going smooth. Everything's perfect. And you're like, you lost your design. You lost the head of design, man. You either, either they weren't doing anything which I don't think you want to say, or and probably wasn't true, or they were doing stuff. And of course there is a change, but they don't want you to think there's a change. This is one of those interesting things where like, we think of the D&D community and we think of the company. And a lot of times we think of the company as the community. Wizards of the Coast loves, absolutely loves the idea that they're part of a community, that they are the community, that there is a D&D community. And that, and of course, if you're on the marketing side, it's like, and it's our community, it's our, it's our people. And so you try to think of it as this nice fuzzy thing, but then there's also like what we want to control, the kind of information that goes in and out. We're not going to, you know, there's certain things we're not going to talk about. There's certain things we are going to talk about. So it's like, well, they don't want to have this conversation of like, what the hell happens to D&D when you, when you, your head of design leaves. They don't want to talk about that. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, did you check out Dragonlance? You see, look, look at that cool thing that's going on over there, right? And it's because they want to kind of control the method of the conversation, which I think is one of the reasons why it was a month before we found out that Ray Weninger wasn't on the team anymore because they don't want to talk about it, right? It wasn't until David Hartledge brought up a tweet and said, hey, I heard this is true. Is this true? Yeah, it's true. I think I think it's important to remember there's a commercial company behind this, right? There's a commercial publicly traded company behind this. They put out stock reports. They put out a big stock report recently. And like for us to treat it like, oh no, it's the nice big fuzzy D&D community. Do we want to give control over the D&D community, our love of this game? Are we handing over the control of it to a publicly traded company? Or is it ours? And I keep going with it's ours, right? It's ours and we do what we want with. So what does this mean for the future of D&D though? Is it terrible? The future D&D is terrible. No, who knows? The answer is who knows? My favorite data science visual data visualization is the shrug emoji. I, who knows? I can say, and I brought it up, I think last time I was talking about it, it means the future of D&D is uncertain. Not bad. Not. It's not certainly good. It's not certainly bad. I don't know where it's going to be. And we're going to see. I think it's pretty safe to say like they're definitely moving towards a digital, a focus on digital stuff. Does that mean they're going to not publish books? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean they're going to publish digital only products? Sure, but so does lots of, lots of people publish digital only products. So, you know, I think, you know, 
we'll see. But also, it means it's important for us to get control over our game and recognize the fact that, like, if we put too much stake in Wizards of the Coast to control our fun of the game, we could be hurting if that goes in a direction we're not happy with. So how do we stay happy with the game? I, I ask this question all the time. How do we stay cap- happy with this game, this game that we love, this game that brings our friends together, that brings us to with, together with our friends, that I think is genuinely important in the world. I really, really, really think D&D is important for the world. I think that a lot of people are brought together. They have a catalyst to get together with their friends and family that in these days we often don't have. And I think that's super important and super, you know, super valuable. I wrote about this. I have an article on my website about D&D can save your life. And I, and I still believe it very firmly. So I think it's that important that I don't want to have control of it in the hands of a corporate, a single commercial company who makes profit-driven decisions, kind of, or makes decisions based on executive whims. So what does it mean? I don't know. But we can give some feedback because the 1D&D survey for experts is out. If you have been following it, there are two play tests for 1D&D. One was on races and backgrounds and then now we have the first batch of classes which is called the expert classes this was for the ranger the bard and the rogue and the survey is out for you to give your feedback i gave my feedback i don't think my feedback was very good because i didn't really dive deep into a lot of the details and the survey is about details i did give feedback on some specific things that i that i felt and that i wanted to get across big big kind of things that i wanted to get across i found my opportunity whether it be read i don't know if they get twenty thousand surveys who knows if they're going to read mine but i but i put that in there i did two two people whose opinions on this I listen to a lot and respect greatly are my friends Sean Merwin and Teo Sabadia. The two of them do the Mastering Dungeons podcast. It's also available on YouTube. I should link, I will link to the YouTube version of it as well in case you're a YouTube, in case you like following stuff on YouTube. And they talk all about the expert playtest. They have had multiple episodes talking about the details of this. The last one they talked about was about feats. And they brought up something really interesting about feats which I hadn't thought of before. And that idea was that in the original 2014 version of D&D, the, f- the fifth edition 2014 version of D&D, the power of a feat, if you listen to them, I remember them talking about this, the designers of the fifth edition of D&D. They said that a feat is designed to be roughly equivalent to a plus two ability score bonus, which is why you could either choose an ability score bonus or a feat. And if you looked at some of the feats, you go, yeah, that makes sense, that I could either take a plus two to dexterity, which gives me plus one to AC, plus one to my attack bonus and damage with light weapons. It gives me you know, plus one to my dexterity saving throw. Like that feels like a feat. It's a big deal to get a plus one to all that stuff. Or you could take toughness, which gives you two hit points per level, but doesn't give you that other stuff. So if you think about like, plus two to constitution, a plus two bonus to your constitution would give you plus one hit point per level and give you plus one to your constitution saving throw. I don't think it really, I don't think you really get much off, but you're like, okay, if I get plus one to my con save and plus one hit point, that's pretty good. Or instead of, I could get no bonus to my constitution save, but I could get a plus two hit points instead. I mean, it's actually the plus two is probably a little bit better, but it's, you know, it's not bad. That's a comparison. What they said is with what Teos and Sean brought up that I hadn't thought of is they're still saying, oh, the plus two bonus is still a feat. You can go pick a feat that gives you a plus two bonus, except every other feat also gives you a plus one bonus to an ability score. So they essentially increased. I did talk about this. They increased the power of feats in the playtest. Again, it's still a playtest. Who knows? They're going to change it. But they increased the power of a feat by about 50%. That a feat was about, if you considered a feat being 100%, they are now 150% because you're getting all of the benefits of the feat 
and a plus one bonus to an ability score, which means all of those other feats are now better than the plus two bonus to an ability score because that it should be a plus three bonus to an ability score. So if you want to look at like how powerful feats suddenly got, and in my opinion, they did get significantly more powerful 50 percent is 50 percent imagine if you were giving your characters a three plus three bonus to an ability score improvement instead of a plus two bonus to an you know that's right so g blaster brings up plus three asi is insanely op so are the feats <laughs> right now what they have basically done is said yeah that now you have a weak feat the weak feat is a plus two bonus to an ability score bonus because every other one is plus one and you can monkey if your dm lets you do it and a lot of dms do adventures league lets you do it you can monkey around with your ability scores to make sure you're always getting a even score even if you're only getting a plus one bonus you can kind of shift everything around and manipulate your numbers and then bang one of them goes up and it's that part of it that drives me bananas because you're making complexity for no reason like that that complexity of monkeying around with your ability score so you're always getting like an odd or even number so you're getting that bonus that actually affects your character rather than one that an odd that doesn't affect you at all that's so freaking complicated and the idea of like why not just have ability scores like just ability scores are ability scores right they just their own thing. They're their own mechanic. You figure out your ability scores, you're done. Backgrounds are backgrounds. They don't have anything to do with ability scores. Feats are feats. They don't have anything to do with ability scores. The idea that ability scores are now like, oh, well, you get some of them from monkeying around with your ability score stuff, and then you get a bonus to them from your background. So now you got a monkey with the math over here and do the backgrounds. And then you get a feat, and that's got it. And now you're like, oh, I got to manipulate all these three things so that I could get my perfect little layout. Oh my God. Why? So I wrote about that. I, I, I gave that my feedback. Like, why are you making this so complicated? You're making the game harder for no reason. You're still going to want to have odd and even scores. You're increasing the power without increasing anything else. You're making the whole the whole ability score thing is so complicated. I've worked with players who have been playing for years and we're working with paper sheets and like, oh my God. And I'm like, just pick 16, 14, 14, 12, 12, 8. Just 16, 14, 14, 12, 12, 8 and call it done. That includes your background stuff, includes all your bonuses. Just choose that. And then you can choose to get a plus two bonus to an ability score if you want, taking a 16 to an 18 or whatever, or you can pick a feat. But the idea that feats have bonuses, ugh, drives me bananas. The survey's out. Listen to what Sean and Teos have to say about it. They have a lot of things about it. My feelings on the playtest overall, I think I've pretty much given them right my feelings on the playtest are like why why are we doing this the game is not getting better in my opinion because of this there are some things that really are we're going to talk about some of this stuff some of these things are genuine improvements but there is a lot of tweaking of stuff that it wasn't a problem i don't know why it was a problem i did have discussions with other people who said no that is a problem an example is when you decide that you're going to normalize subclass progression so that every class gets a subclass at the same level and i'm like you know i've run a thousand D&D games. I've run dozens of campaigns. I've worked with hundred do dozens of players, certainly. I don't know if I've worked with a hundred players. I've read, I don't know how many freaking posts on how many different forums, how many different tweets. I think I'm, I'm trying to keep my eyes pretty open about D&D a lot. It's part of my business. It's part of my hobby. It's part of something I really love to do. I haven't heard anybody that said, oh God, it's so terrible that a wizard gets a subclass at one level and a bard gets it at another, or that a sorcerer gets it at first level. Oh, it's just awful. I didn't. So now that's not true. I have, a, I have one friend of mine who was like, yes, it is a really big problem. And I'm like, is it really though? Like, I think that from a design perspective, maybe originally it wasn't a great idea, but now we've got it. And now you're going to break every subclass. I just re reviewed two products that just came out that have new subclass options that will not be compatible with the next version of D&D simply because they were going to decide that they want subclass progression to go on another side. I'm not a fan. But let's set that aside. And let's talk about the things that the one D&D playtest has that are really cool that we could just bring into our game right away. And we can almost think of them like 
what are the new, like if we think of these as Wizards of the Coast designed house rules, these are things that Wizards of the Coast is saying, almost like what they put into Xanathar's Guide. Like, hey, here's some things you might try. I think that's not a bad idea. So what are some of the things that we could try that we could bring into our game that could actually you, we just do? First one I do is exhaustion mechanics, replacing the current exhaustion mechanics with the minus one to your and any any D20 check. I think that's a really good one. I think the exhaustion being used that way is really good. I think it means you can bring it to monsters now. Monsters can then add exhaustion onto their list of status effects and not totally screw your player. Because in current exhaustion, if you use exhaustion on a monster, it's so nasty. It gets It's so meaningless, and then all of a sudden, it's the worst thing in the world. So the scale of exhaustion is really bad. But the minus one, minus two, minus three, great for vampires, great for specters, great for wraiths. Any creature that does like a life drain, Boy, I, I'm I'm seriously thinking about adding exhaustion to that. I think that's really, really good. I know a lot of DMs. So some of these things I think are, are good. And one of the things where I think it's pretty clear that Wizards of the Coast is actually keeping their eyes open is many of the things that are in the basic rule stuff for the 1DD playtest are things that other groups have been using as house rules for some time, which means they've been hardened a little bit. We've, we've looked at this stuff and seen it and it's been hardened a little bit. Examples of this are like feats at first level. Some groups say, I like to give my characters options for feats at first level. We just saw the Venture Maidens one added the Heroic Destinies idea, which is almost kind of like a feat that you could kind of get early on. So I, I, I'm not opposed to that. I think that the idea of like, hey, go grab a feat at first level as an option isn't, isn't a terrible option. People, people really like that one. So it would be better if the feats didn't have ability scores and levels. Why do we have levels on feats? I don't know why there are levels on feats. Again, added complexity for no reason. And again, breaking backward compatibility. Oh, what were the levels of the old feats? Grr, angry, 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 slight flourish. So, you know, I don't think you need to have levels on feats, but I think like the idea of, hey, let characters pick a feat. And if you want to be a DM, you could say, here are the set of feats I'd like you to be able to pick from. So you could limit the feats and say, these feats are the ones that you could pick, but, but, but that can work. Apparently other groups than I have been using the offhand attack doesn't require a bonus action house rule for some time. I didn't know this. Like I hadn't really heard about it. I complained all about power creep and like, you know, if you allow people to do these optional attacks without using a bonus action, you're basically just extending the turn. I still feel that way. It still feels like we're making character turns take longer because you're still going to have that like, oh, I've attacked and I've attacked twice with my primary hand. I attack once in my offhand. Do I have any other bonus action stuff? You know, can I attack as another bonus action? There's like complications there. I'm not sure. I would rather they didn't have bonus actions, frankly. You know, I don't, I don't like bonus actions, but you know, nobody, nobody's asking me and it's too late now. We have them, but some people have been doing that. And I guess it, it does help normalize characters where their offhand attack is really part of the math. So like, if you think about a great weapon master fighter, who's fighting with a two hand weapon, they get big damage bonuses and they get big damage things that they can do that don't require a bonus action. But, but even then, like, you know, I played a glaive wielder and my glaive wielder had to use his offhand attack as a bonus action. And it meant like I had a lot of bonus action paralysis and maybe it wouldn't have slowed the game down any, but I feel like I would have gotten a lot more. My character definitely would have been more powerful. I played a glaive wielding fighter who is a rune knight and the rune knight stuff has a lot of bonus action stuff. And I knew that like it, it slowed my damage down because I was like, okay, I can't butt with the end of the glaive. Instead, I have to do this other thing. If you remove that, I would have been doing a lot more stuff. If, does it feel good? Sure. Does it feel good for everyone else? I don't know. I'm taking up more time and now they're taking up more time because their bonus actions aren't. So I don't know if I would do this myself, but I know people who have, and that means it's something you could bring right in. So those are like three, the feats of first level, offhand attacks, not requiring a bonus action and the exhaustion rules. Heroic inspiration, the role after seeing the result. So that is a really good one. I've been doing it this way now forever. I think a lot of DMs have been doing it this way forever. It was only like Teo Sabadia. He and I had a conversation and I was like, wait a minute, that's it doesn't work that way. And I'm like, I guess 
guess it kind of doesn't. He's like, no, you need to decide if you're going to use inspiration before you roll the die. You don't get to roll the die, see the result, and then say you want to use inspiration because it offers advantage. And that's not how advantage works. And I was like, I guess that's true. But that, you know, boy, that's lame. And he's like, well, that's how it's supposed to be. And I'm like, I know, but it still feels lame. So I've often done it. Where, no, you can roll. Oh, do you want to use inspiration on that roll? Do you ask them to use their inspiration before they make the roll? Do you want to use inspiration on this roll? Which is the correct way to do it. But I think I'm just going to go with the, you can use inspiration after you've seen the result of a roll and then roll again. Because it sucks if you like add inspiration and roll and it's, you made it with the first one. You blew your inspiration. And inspiration is a big deal. And also the idea that you get inspiration when you roll one. I think that's a fine, I think that's a fine way to go. I still like my house rule that I run, which is everybody starts with inspiration at the beginning of a session. That when a session begins, you have inspiration. And that way I don't have to even think about it. And all my players know it. They go, oh, I'm going to use my daily inspiration for that. Now, the idea is if you roll one, you could get it back. That can work to so that's not a bad way to go so i'm 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 a fan of those but i think going with the idea that you get to use your inspiration after you've seen the result of a role because inspiration is meant to be this really nice big thing i don't see a problem of having people do it after the results of the role are seen even though it's a little weird you know it's a it's a little weird going on so i think i think that that's i think that that's fine so those are some elements those are just a handful there's probably others of things in the one dnd playtest i'm seeing so far where i go that's not a bad idea i would bring that into my game i would consider bringing that into my game so 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 there's good stuff coming out of this you know and it's good conversations that are occurring let's look at our patreon questions for october 2022 Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I post a post saying, ask any questions you want to ask about the world of D&D, and I will answer them there on Patreon, and some of them will make their way to the talk show. Sometimes they expand out into articles or videos that I, that I do at other times. The first question is from Gregory B. You mentioned using NPCs as ciphers in your wrap-up of the Numenera campaign. Any advice for translating that idea into D&D? I would love to be able to add NPCs to a big final combat in ways PCs can decide and give them tactical abilities that don't involve me as a DM having to keep track of them in initiative, keeping up with their actions, etc. So yeah, so what am I what did I do? Uh, in Numenera, you have a thing called assets, and assets can raise or lower the difficulty. It's sort of like raising and lowering the difficulty cl class of a thing, a DC of something. And I had it where all of the NPCs were involved with the characters, almost like the Avengers, right? If you think about it, like Avengers Endgame, where they're all running in at the same time, you have you know 96 Avengers that are all going in there, and there's all these characters that you want. Sometimes you want a scene like that where it's not just the characters, it's the characters, it's all of their friends, it's all of the other NPCs that they've met on the way, and they're getting involved in this one great big thing maybe it's a big war maybe it's something else well how do you run that in a game like DD? and i think in 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 what i did for numenera is i said that you the, the player a player could choose to bring one of their npcs in and treat it as an asset lower difficulty but there was a risk that that character would die because this was a big high stakes game and then they would roll, so they would that would lower the difficulty, and then they would roll a check on that character to see if they if they died. They didn't need a lot of it, but they were able to do it. So one of the the ways you could translate that that into D and D is pretty straightforward, which is you could have all of these NPCs that are out there doing stuff in this great big melee. You would describe all of the things that they're doing, that they're involved in all these other fights, but that during your fight they could leap in the way, and essentially they could offer you advantage on any check that you're making or could offer disadvantage on an enemy's check that they're making or something like that, that you could use them as essentially quick inspiration, but they would have to make a saving throw. That character has to make a saving throw to determine if they die or knocked out or whatever. So it's a way to have them 
you know, show up. It's almost like you got a pool of action points. These action points are these NPCs. And maybe they have to make the check before. You could just, you can monkey around with it. But the easy way is advantage and disadvantage. That advantage and disadvantage is your DM tool that you can always use for lots of different circumstances. Environmental circumstances, circumstantial, you know, things going on in the in the battle, weird ways that it has changed. NPC actions or NPC that I tell you, I mean, think about the help action. The help action is essentially offering advantage so any of those npcs could jump in and do the help action if they do so you will have to make a check to see if they survive that that's how i would do it but the the main lesson here is that advantage and disadvantage is your dm tool that that is the thing you know they used to call it the dm helper in previous editions was a plus two minus two that the, the plus two bonus was something you could apply to anything well instead of that we have advantage and disadvantage you can apply that wherever you want to to act as some kind of mechanic for an event that's occurring in the game so that's greg gregory i hope that answers your question that's that's how i would do it we have another Numenera question. Axel C says, one of my Numenera players said Numenera doesn't satisfy his dice rolling itch. And another was disappointed at the small selection of powers a Nano has compared to a 5e spellcaster. That's why I strongly consider converting our Numenera game to 5e using Arcana of the Ancients, i.e. playing in the ninth world with 5e. All players in that group have played at least one 5e campaign, so they know the rules. What do you think about that? What would be easy and what would be difficult? I think you're right on that if you if your players are not digging the system of Numenera, and I talked about this, that's, you know, I, I found out after our game was done that a lot of the players were not really that happy with cypher i don't think any of them are saying i'd never want to play cypher again or i really didn't like playing with cypher but we did see it kind of break down as it got to higher levels so it's certainly reasonable that players would say i don't really dig the cypher system i have other players that really don't like the cypher system and they love 5e and so yeah you can definitely convert all of numenera to 5e and of course the book you brought up arcana of the ancients beasts flesh and steel there are other books that they've done numenera monty cook games has put out other numenera based books that use 5e rules so you can do a lot with it and i think it would work very well the hard parts would be reskinning a lot of the stuff that you're seeing in numenera into the terms that five that makes sense with 5e your glaives your nanos your jacks a lot of that stuff the other interesting thing you could do though is you you don't have to necessarily i mean so it's one thing if you want to run a ninth world based game this sort of high fantasy high science fantasy game you could certainly do that but you can also create almost like a reverse lost world that you could have sections in your normal D&D game. And this is where Beasts of Flesh and Steel. So Where the Machines Wait, another, another book that Monty Cook Games put out. This book is designed to be a sort of lost world of Numenera stuff that appears in your normal D&D games. So that's another idea. It's like you could just make a D&D, but instead of going, if you if you think about like your Isle of Dread, well, what if instead of like dinosaurs and, and, and primeval stuff, it is machines it's a it's an island of machine stuff cybernetics super advanced technology not just you know ancient stuff but it's ancient stuff that's way higher tech so that would work really well in eberron i, I used it in eberron a lot but you, you know that's another way that you can bring a lot of numenera stuff the other one is like once you've got arcana of the ancients and you're using numenera flavoring of your 5e game you can use other numenera books so yeah there's other there's lots of different ways that you can use numenera and can mix your numenera and your and your DD games together tubi says sometimes i or my partner like to go over the top and prepare some extra stuff for special seasons fancy decorations the 
thematic snacks, appropriate lighting, and so on. You can do a, actually you can actually do a lot with a little effort. Electrical candlelights are my favorites. Do you have any other cool ideas to enhance the game session apart from the game itself? P.S. Our next special session theme will be Halloween, of course, and I guess there's a lot of potential there. There's tons of stuff you can do like this. My my probably my number one trick is go to your local craft shops after a holiday because you get a lot of stuff on sale. Go to your like local drug stores, go to your local craft shops and buy all their cheap tchotchkes and doodads that they have around for a particular hour, especially after Halloween. So four weeks from now, really good point. And, you know, go buy a bunch of that stuff and then save it and either save it for next year if you want to run a themed party or use it in your other, other games. So obviously decorations are a big one. Cooking thematic meals or having like a thematic potluck. This is my wife's idea. She's like, why not have a thematic potluck where you say, we want you to bring stuff, but when, you know, you're going to be at Weathertop, we want you to bring sausages and nice crispy bacon and, and mashed potatoes and carrots, right? Root vegetables and and sausages and bacon and stuff like that. And you can like, oh, we're all going to eat like we're eating at Weathertop. And, you know, that's kind of a fun, fun thing to do. Thematic foods. A big one that I think is a really high value, and I've, I've, I've done a video about this. I've, I've written articles about this before. A really high value activity that has this is handouts. Things that you can give to the characters, to the players that are something their character would actually be holding. It could be handouts. It could be props. It could be like a gemstone. Like imagine you're handing treasure, you know, like fake coins, lots of different physical props that you can use that you can hand to the players so they feel like they're getting it. I know campaign coins was like, isn't it cooler when you're giving actual coins to your characters when they get treasure rather than just saying you got some gold coins? There's definitely things like that. So decorating music and environment, of course, is great. All of the different streaming services, YouTube, Spotify, and everything else have like spooky environmental music. Get a little Bluetooth speaker, connect your phone up to it. And during the game, you can hit a thing and, and send some, some music over. Now, of course, there's a question of what about online? What can you do online? Foundry, the, the VTT Foundry has tons of different sort of effects that you can do. I would say if you're using other things, then images and, and sound are your friends. If you're doing sound effects, I really love Kenku FM done by the same people that do Albert Rodeo. Kenku FM is a way to broadcast any of the sounds that you can pull up in a browser from your machine and send it into the Discord chat server as though it's another member of your chat server. Really great way to kind of add sound effects or add music. The players on their side can control the levels. So if it's too if it's too loud or too light, they can change the levels to get it where it wants. So that's a good way to do look and look and sound, even if you're playing online. But yeah, and, and handouts too, that you can still do like pictures of physical handouts. You can make a physical handout, take a picture of it and send that picture over Discord. And it still feels like, well, I know it was a real thing. I can't hold it, but I can physically see that that was a real thing, not just an image or not just text up on a screen that was supposedly in it. So lots of different things you can do there. So, so TUB, thank you for that. Thank you for that question. Sam Moore says, I just finished running Frostmaiden after one and a half years. The final battle was suitably epic, taking over four hours, but it was mostly one big bad enemy with multiple phases though it was fun kind of it kind of dragged out what are your thoughts about running epic battles and key moments in the campaign without making them drag on or take forever really good question this happens a lot first of all it's okay to have a big long battle and a final battle as long as the players are interested it's it's can go as long as you want it to go so how do you keep it interesting you're, you're right about having multiple phases, that having like sets of monsters come in, having things change, having the environment change during this. I think if you really want to watch the 20th level version of this, if you want to watch the, the top of the top in this, I would suggest watching the season, I think it's the season one finale of Critical Role. It's a five, I think it's five hours long. 
It's the their, their final, I think it's the second to last episode. It's their final battle against Vecna. And it's a huge battle and so much goes on. And you want to talk about like emotional commitment. Two players burst into tears during the game because of stuff that's happening in the game. Like in, in, in you know, they're so emotionally connected to the game that they that they 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 burst into tears during the game. It's really powerful stuff. And part of it is because of the things that are happening in the game. It's not just the battle that's going on. It's the connection of the characters to the world that's going on. So if you think about a battle, like it's not just combat, but it is also an opportunity for exploration. It's also an opportunity for role play. And you're tugging on those exploration and role-playing lines. They're discovering things while they're in the battle. Things are changing. New things are getting revealed. Maybe if like they have a magic sword that's been sentient, that a sentient magic sword, but it's only in that moment that the sword is gonna then say, I think it's time I took over here, don't you? And like they're learning, oh my God, my sword is trying to take me over. So there's lots of different sort of angles that you can bring in. Tug on those character strings, tug on the backgrounds. What does it mean for them? Give the characters the opportunity to meet a final big arc of their character in that battle. So the battle is constantly evolving. And you might have to plan out your battle like you're planning in a whole session because it might be the whole session. So what are the 10 secrets and clues that they could discover in the battle? Who are the NPCs that they could talk to in the battle? Who, what scenes are going to take place in the battle? Right? Don't just think of it as, as combat for combat's sake. Like Think about those other ones. Then the other thing about like, well, how, if it starts to drag, turn those dials around. Maybe that character that they, you know, they're just doing so much damage to that thing. It's not going down. Maybe it goes down or explodes or turns into something else. Something else happens. Move those dials around. Change the amount of damage you're doing. Change the amount of hit points they have. Change that stuff to keep that excitement going so that it doesn't drag on. And if it's time, turn the dials the other way and they, they win. Right? Don't don't forget about that great scene when Indiana Jones faces off against the big swordsman and just pulls out a gun and shoots him. Like, that was pretty monumental. So sometimes they might have it where the final boss shows up and one hit knocks them out. And that's really dramatic and players will remember that players will remember when your boss dies in a single hit. I had a huge vampire boss who got beheaded with a vorpal sword in the first hit. And it was pretty epic. And we're like, that, you know, we're not, I'm not changing that. It was really, really cool. So yeah, so I hope, Sam, I hope that gives you some ideas about how to make your epic battles even more epic and also ensure that you're keeping the pacing light so that they are, they're, they're, they're remaining fun. My friends, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, you can help me out. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get weekly D&D related articles directly to your inbox. You also get a free PDF adventure generator that you can use in your games right away. You can support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material. It was recently brought up as their favorite Patreon, the, the best Patreon. I don't know about the best Patreon. That's, 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 that's a high bar. That seems to statistically unlikely to be the best but it's really good it's a really good deal you get a lot of good stuff tips for your DD games different ways to play the game whole pile of exclusive adventures the city of access to the city of arches sourcebook discord server the patreon q a which you're seeing right now you get access to all of that and you help me put on shows like this and you can pick up any of my books return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook the lazy dms companion all available in pdf and in beautiful offset printed versions on the sly flourish bookstore the links to all of that are in the show notes below Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.